Hello and welcome to the Wednesday night Bible class of the Boonville Church of Christ. My name is Ken Forrest and I have the honor of being able to teach this class for you. We are actually in a series of lessons that's talking about how to develop a servant mentality. So right here in the very middle of this series, we're doing a mini-series out of the book of Romans in chapter 12. That text is especially helpful because it, it really has all you need to know about what it is to be a living sacrifice, a true servant of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at two sections out of this text, and tonight, Lord willing, we're going to finish this chapter. In the first two verses, as a means of reminder, we find out really what it is to be a living sacrifice. Paul says, I beseech you, or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, not a dead, but a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's, it's the right thing to do. To do. It's, it's what you ought to be naturally motivated to do. And do not be conformed or made with the form of the world, but be transformed. Go through a metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or become the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That text lays kind of a general groundwork for us and the intention of that living sacrifice is to do the very last part there, to be an example of what's the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Interestingly, tonight we're going to be talking about that section from verses 9 to the end of the chapter that actually talks about that holy and acceptable kind of life. Last week, we were looking at verses 3 through 8, and our attempt was to make an honest assessment of ourselves. Am I really a living sacrifice? Am I on the right track? Have I put into at least my mind the idea that I'm not alone in my service, but I'm actually part of a, a bigger work. You know, the intention of God is that, yeah, I have my own individual abilities and resources, but I'm working together with a much larger body, and all of us together as a body are striving to accomplish the work of God. So it says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Therefore, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, so as a progression, we have the general idea, you be a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable. 
Understand, though, that you are one member of a larger body, and each person has a particular role to play. It isn't to say that maybe several of us can do the same things, but every person as part of the body has a responsibility to carry their load, however heavy that is. Seems like sometimes some people carry more of the weight than others. And you may aspire to be like them, but maybe it is that God hasn't equipped you that way. Or maybe God has grander notions in mind with regard to you. Only you can make the assessment of how that living sacrifice is going to look in your own life, what you are going to be. This next section, the one that we're going to really be examining tonight, has the idea of, okay, what is it really to be that example? What, what kind of characteristics do I have to have in place in my life to be holy and acceptable to God? What would that life look like? And he describes, if there's something else out there that needs to be included, well, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. He describes the life in some pretty fine detail and brings in a lot of things. I promise you that this text is, it's very challenging right off the bat. So I don't want us to, I don't necessarily want us to knock ourselves uh, down or beat ourselves up too bad. But listen, here are the things that God is wanting us to know that he's looking for in us. And the quicker we get uh, interested in living the life that we ought to be living and, and getting rid of some of the bad habits that we've developed over time, the quicker that God is going to be able himself to put us into our place and to accomplish some great things for him. And I'll tell you, one, for me, I'm looking forward to seeing how God's going to use every member in the church here in Boonville. If you're tuning in from some other place, then you know what? My, my hope is still the same for you. Wherever it is that you're planted, wherever it is that you're a vital part of a church body, I pray that the things that he says here will help guide you to find your place and to be effective in it. Before we start our study of that, since it's God's word, let's have a prayer that he will bless us in that study. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we have to study together from your word. And Lord, I pray that it will be helpful to all of us that we can truly be living sacrifices. I know already by studying this text that it's challenging. I pray, Lord, First of all, that you'll help me. Help me to exemplify the things that are written here. And forgive me, Father, when I have fallen short. I also pray for those who are hearing this that the same will be true for them. Help them to examine their lives in such a way that they know how it is they fit into the plan and whether or not they're living as you've called them to live. If they're doing great, I pray you bless them in it. If they're making mistakes, or falling short, I pray that you'll make that evident and that you will help them as you're helping me to get better. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your spirit that guides us and for 
the practical nature of the things that we find here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to break this text down into some digestible sections. And I want us to see the challenge of sacrifice. And you'll know what I mean when we look over it. Then I want us to see the heart of sacrifice, the kind of, the kind of heart, the internalizing that needs to be done with us as we're looking out and, and dealing with other people. And then finally, understanding the pressure that each of us will experience as we're living this sacrifice. Look, Jesus did not promise to protect us from every ill and harm that there is in the world, but we know that with him we can overcome the world. So let's think first about the great challenge of sacrifice. This will entail uh, beginning at verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And we'll stop right there at verse 13. Maybe you saw it as quickly as I did, but when I started thinking about the practical aspect of this text, I didn't have to really go any farther than that first phrase, and, and maybe it's designed that way. Because he hits us with a ton of bricks immediately. He says to let love be without hypocrisy. You know, as we've studied in other texts, that love is fundamental when it comes to us as the Lord's body. When Jesus was instructing his disciples, he made that abundantly clear. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are, then you have a genuine love for others. Because that's the kind of love that Jesus had. Jesus had that love even for his enemies. So there's a difficult challenge right here. Here's the problem. For many, love isn't, I don't know, a natural thing. And maybe it is that we are so intentional about being a loving person that sometimes we do things that are good for people without actually having a true loving heart about it. What I mean is we might do the right thing, but do it for the wrong reason. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he addressed that problem. He said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, I understand all, mystery, all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. 
does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then the first part of verse 8 says that love never fails. Now here's a description of love that does a couple of things. First, the first three verses of that text, he tells us that anything that we do, if it doesn't have love with it, it really doesn't have value. At least it doesn't have value for the one giving. And then secondly, that love can be identified by a lot of different traits. It isn't just the action itself. Much of what's described there has to do with what's going on the inside of me. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, love has got to be genuine. I've always been amazed at the wisdom that's found in a statement that John made by inspiration in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. It says, let us love not in word, but in deed and in truth. Not word or tongue, not what you say, but in your actions, how you do it, and in truth. Not just the sense that, well, I'm loving on the basis of a command of God, but really I think the idea that's being described here, love that's being expressed out of a genuine heart. Let love be without hypocrisy. Then he says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. To abhor something means that you have a disdain for it. You literally shudder from it. Okay, the idea is the evil just, it runs through me. I actually have an emotional response to evil because I hate it so much. It, it causes me to shake, abhor what is evil. Some years ago, I'm not sure if it was a Christmas gathering or what, but I just remember all of us grandkids being gathered in the living room of my grandparents' house. My grandfather was sitting on a couch behind us, and the television was on in front of us. Us kids, we were just playing among ourselves. Grandpa was watching the TV. We weren't really paying any attention to it. But as we were playing, apparently, somebody said a cuss word on the television. I'll never forget my grandfather jumping up off of that couch, jumping over us grandkids in order to get to that television and to slap it off. Now, back then, we didn't have remote controls. We had a little button. <laughs> he ran up there to slap that button to turn that television off. And to be honest with you, I really don't remember ever seeing that television on again in their house. You see, my grandfather abhorred what was evil. He shuddered from it. And when he thought that that evil might hit the ears of his grandkids, he was going to protect them. He did that as a result of hearing one cuss word. Do you abhor what is evil? What do you do when you hear a cuss word on television or on a movie that you're watching? Listen, I, I'm, I'm not judging anybody. I've seen plenty of movies and television programs where the language 
was beyond comprehension, to be honest with you. And much, if not all of that, we couldn't continue with. But I'm just looking at the text with you, and I know what it is to be a living sacrifice. He says, what you do when you're a living sacrifice is you abhor what is evil. You can't deal with it. It makes you shudder, shake. But you don't just abhor what's evil. It's not, it's not enough that you can't stand evil things. He says you abhor what is evil and you cling to what is good. You let go of evil things in order to, and that word means to be stuck to it as though you were glued to it. So I'm going to turn my back on the evil when it's there. But then I'm going to be proactive and I'm going to grab onto, I'm going to be cemented to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Now it's interesting, he started off with, you abhor what's evil. He said, abhor what's evil, cling to what is good. He had already told us to be genuine in our love. So there, there are two powerful, really three powerful statements about action. And now he turns to our relationships. Probably bearing on those things, understand that in your relationship, it is a relationship filled with all manner of love and acceptance of one another. Now we're all going to have problems to come, but there's one group of people we can always depend on, and that's going to be our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Be kindly affectionate is the combination of two Greek words, storge and phileo. Storge is the uh, Greek word that reflects uh, family love, love of parents uh, to children and children, siblings to one another, th that kind of thing. And the phileo is affection. Be kindly affectionate to one another in the body of Christ like you would in a family relationship with brotherly love. So you understand you are brothers, right? Okay, now watch that step. I, I'm going to love you like you're in my family, but oh, wait, you are my family in the body of Christ. We are from literally the same womb. That's the idea of Adelphos, born from the same womb. So what womb is it we're born from? Well, that is in our relationship to God, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, according to this combination of words, to have the same affection and love for one another as, say, you would have in a physical family. Understand, this is your spiritual family, and you're going to be connected like you would in a family. Here's the thing about that. When I think about my family and my extended family, I promise you, like my mom and dad and my brothers, we're pretty much the same because we were, you know, us boys, we were raised under the same set of guidelines and we were encouraged and loved by our parents in a certain way. So we all grew up basically the same. We feel very comfortable with one another. Even now, when I see my brother, we don't even have to say a word, just start laughing because we just kind of have the same sense of humor about things. But I'll tell you, I've got some cousins <laughs> that I promise very different from me. Some are, some are similar, but there are some very different from me. And the reason is, well, we're in the same family and, and we appreciate one another. and We know we're connected, but we're just different. 
We might not normally associate with one another socially, but I'll tell you what, when there's a family gathering, we all get together. And we're all loving one another. We're all accepting of one another. You say, well, Ken, I know so-and-so who's your cousin or so-and-so who's your uncle or aunt or whatnot, and boy, they are a mess. You know what? They may be. And as you judge them, you may say, they're nothing like me. But let me tell you something. That person that you're considering right there, as messed up as they may be, they're in my family. And I love them. I may not agree with what they do. I'll never accept some of the choices that they have made. But there's one thing that I will do to the grave, and that is I will love them. And when they have a need... I'm going to come running. Well, let me tell you something about church family. It's just like that. We're all different. And honestly, we may not, in social settings, we may not even mix. I may never, ever see you outside this church building. But I know you're a part of my family. And when we come together as a body, we are one. There isn't any one of us that's better than the other. We are together. We are level on the same ground at the foot of the cross. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And then he adds, in honor, giving preference to one another. So now I'm preferring you and you are preferring me. And we are pushing one another all the way up to heaven. I introduced that idea last week. And I'm sticking with it, especially with this text. You see, this whole idea of loving one another just flows through the entire chapter. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. There's a lot in there about attitude and relationship. For one, you know that as a servant of God, you are the blessed, you're the most blessed kind of servant that there is in the world. And so when we serve the Lord, we do it with the right attitude. And I also know with a great combining of these terms that I'm going to face tribulation and difficulties and and setbacks in life. But I'm going to be a praying child of God. And it actually reminds me of James chapter 1 beginning at verse 2. To count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's the kind of idea. And then we've got the spirit right, and and we've got our attitude about difficulties, and we offer up prayers to God. Then we realize, you know what, it isn't that bad. It, It isn't so difficult at all. And God has been blessing me all the way through this thing. So when I see someone else in need, I'm going to do what I can to help them. So I'm going to distribute to the needs of the saints, and I'm going to be given to hospitality. I'm going to set my mind and my heart to do what is right for another person. Now, as you read through those verses and the the characteristics that are described there, you know why I call that section the challenge of sacrifice, because every one of those is a real challenge. What it requires us to do is to put our own selfish motivations aside in order to prefer the other person. 
But when you talk about the rubber meeting the road, you understand that I'm not always dealing with brothers and sisters. Sometimes I have to deal with those who are on the outside. Am I still a living sacrifice then? (laughs) Well, you know that you are. So that means that whether I'm with my brethren or I'm dealing with someone else, I still have to maintain a right kind of attitude. So not only is there the challenge of sacrifice, but there's also the need to develop the right kind of heart of sacrifice. At verse 14, he says, Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. When that opens up, it reminds me, as it probably does you, of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you should be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Now, in that text, he's talking about perfect love. And not that we are always perfect in it, in the sense that I never mess up. The idea is that when I love other people, well, just like he said in verse 9, I'm going to love them genuinely. Now, it's easy to love people who love me back, but he says anybody can do that. The goal is to love perfectly like God does. And that is the kind of love that we give even if we don't get it back. You say, well, okay, yeah, I'll I'll do that first time, but if they don't respond, uh, I'm letting them have it. That's not how God loves us. God loves us with a perfect love, and that means that he loves us in spite of anything that we do, even when we turn our back on him. Now, he says, bless those who curse you, bless and do not curse. And I've heard people in in my experience say all kinds of things without really thinking about what he told us to do here. I've heard Christians say something like, you know, I, I will, I will be with a person. I'll encourage them. I'll build them up. I'll trust them until they cross me the first time. And after they cross me, they can forget it. I'm done with them. Okay. I, I hear you. That's a normal human response. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt until you cross me and then I can't trust you anymore. But that's not what this text says. This text says, bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. Don't return evil for the evil that they did to you. You see, I'm thinking I have the right for an eye to eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not according to Jesus. Jesus is telling us, as he said in other texts, to turn the other cheek. To love them despite what we receive back from them. To love them, as we already noted, to love them perfectly. You say, well, Ken... I won't do that. Peace. You know what? I'm not jumping through the screen here and going to force you to do anything. In fact, that's not my place. All I'm doing is looking at the text with you. 
And it may be that you won't do it. But don't say you can't do it. Because you can do it. You can do it because Jesus has called us to do it following his example. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who in his, he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered, and did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but in our return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 21, or chapter 2, beginning verse 21. Now, that text tells us, okay, you know what? You can suffer. You don't want to suffer, but you can suffer. And you can suffer for the right reasons, just like Jesus did. And oh, by the way, he died for you so that you could live this way. He died for you, separated you from your sins. And the idea would be, well, since he did that for me, I'm going to love him enough to suffer with him. I'm going to suffer abuse for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I am not going to have the idea that if it doesn't go right or it goes sideways, that I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's not what he said. He also says, which maybe is against our natural inclinations, talking about genuineness, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Genuineness now. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When something good happens to a brother or sister, they get a new car, get a new house, get an advance in their job, get an inheritance, sell a piece of property and make a bunch of money. I don't know. When something good happens to them, how do you feel about it? Do you think, great, that is a blessing for the body? Or do you think, well, why didn't that happen to me? Nothing good ever happens to me. Again, it's all about our heart and our attitude. This text says that when good things happen to you, brothers and sisters, rejoice with them in it. it here's the thing, talking about genuineness and, and being fake as a contrast. I, I think people can sometimes pretend to be happy for another person. But the other side of that is hard to do. He says to weep with those who weep. When you come to weep with somebody, that's hard to fake. And I'll guarantee you the person who is suffering knows the difference. When you rejoice, rejoice with a genuine heart. When you weep, when you feel sorrow for another person, make sure that's genuine too. And then let the natural outflow of your love and compassion for them materialize itself in some good action on their behalf. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. How are you with your opinions and your opinion of yourself? You hold all the right opinions, don't you? I assume that you do. I kind of think I do too. In fact, if I thought I held the wrong opinions, I mean, does this make logical sense? If I thought I held the wrong opinions, I'd try to get another opinion. I want to have the right opinion. So all the opinions that I hold, I believe, are the right ones. Well, that's good enough for me when I'm alone, but I'm going to tell you, 
There are people out there, namely your brothers and sisters, who are going to have varying opinions about things. Here's what we're supposed to do, or here's the heart that we're supposed to have. It's fine to have an opinion about things, but don't become so set in your opinions that you use those opinions either to hurt another or you force your opinions on them or you have to have your way always. Don't have the sense that what I say matters and what you say doesn't matter. God doesn't operate that way. Jesus didn't demonstrate that attitude. And neither should we have that attitude toward one another. So you got to have the right heart. I think that's all through that section of Scripture. And now we've considered the challenge. Boy, that's tough to have those characteristics. It's important to have a genuine heart. And there were several different ways in which that's manifested. And now the pressure. Because in dealing with the world... You can have some people that no matter how genuine you are, they're coming after you. They're going to attack. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to have evil intentions with regard to you. Hey, I pray, I hope. That's not the case with any of us. But it happens. It's happening right now somewhere. Even in that, the Holy Spirit by inspiration reveals to us by the pen of Paul how it is that we ought to be if we're a living sacrifice. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in my assessment, the things that he wrote there are, you know, pretty easy to understand. And again, it goes against our natural inclinations. Most of us want to get back at people. They do something to us, we want to hurt them back. This text says, don't, don't do that. Have the heart and the mind of a servant. Have the heart and the mind of a living sacrifice that's walking in the footsteps of Jesus, that's striving to emulate Jesus. When they do evil to you, don't seek to repay that. In fact... The attitude is, I'm going to take whatever grievance, whatever harm's been done to me, I'm going to hand that over to God. God's going to take care of it. He says, if your enemy then is hungry, instead of saying, well, good for him, he deserves it. Now, if he's hungry, you're going to feed him. If he's thirsty, you don't say, well, let him perish. Now, you're going to give him a drink. Because when you do that, 
You're heaping coals of fire on his head. Now, I know some people read through, have read through from verse 1 all the way to this verse and said, Yeah, I get all that stuff, that's tough, that's tough, that's tough. Aha! Finally, we're getting to some reason. Right here it is, Ken. I can take vengeance on my enemy. I'm going to heap coals of fire on his head. Oh, I'm going to let him have it. I'm going to burn his head clean off. Really? You think that he's gone through all these verses telling us to have all this self-control and genuinely love people, love them like God does, only to bring us down here and to say, oh, but by the way, if you want to, you can do this to them. <laughs> That's not what he's telling us at all. In fact, I understand that the image there is an ancient one. And in fact, it's so old that many scholars won't even take a crack at it, what this might mean. But I think we can take from the context, somehow or other, it demonstrates the idea of contrition. You keep doing good, and it's very hard for them to continue doing evil. At least, in most cases, that's true. I understand that there was an Aramaic expression of coals in, in the bowels, the sense that, you know, it just... It makes, them, it makes them sick. It just burns them up. Or of an Egyptian custom where someone who was contrite actually put a platter on top of their head with live coals and walked around for everybody to see. It could be something like that. I don't know for sure. But I do know that it is not a license to go out and take vengeance. This text says, no, nah, nah, you know what? If they're hungry, I feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. Uh, wait a minute. That sounds something like Jesus said when he was talking about separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. He was talking about entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, isn't that right? Matthew chapter 25, 35, 36. What distinguished God's people from not God's people was the kind of heart that they had, uh, the living sacrifice. Jesus said, I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You took me in. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Now, wait a minute. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. He says here in our text, if you're enemy, that person has done evil to you. Instead of repaying them with evil, you do good. In this case, they're hungry, feed them, thirsty, give them a drink. Whoops, stop. Jesus is the same one who said, love your enemy. Let's, let's just bring down the whole pile of bricks. Jesus is telling us, you know, demonstrate that concern of feeding and giving drink and so forth. Not just for people that are easy to deal with the occasional benevolence case, you also do that for people that do horrible things to you. The reason you do that is because you're like Jesus. You love like God loves. You love perfectly. The reason you do that is because you are a living sacrifice. And all that he had to say in this entire text really is summed up in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Are you an overcomer? Or are you being influenced by the world? 
I pray that you're a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. You see, that, that's your reasonable service. And that you're not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or become the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we know what it is to be a living sacrifice. We've assessed ourselves for those purposes. And now we're striving to prove by example what's the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We want to take these attributes and continue applying them to us so that we can be the kind of servants that God has called us to be. Let's pray, and then we will be finished. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to study your word. And I pray, Father, that it has been a blessing to us from the sense that we now know what we ought to look like. And Father, we have all kinds of dispositions about us, and sometimes our hearts aren't right. Lord, forgive us when we mess up and help us to get back on track, not to stay in a, stay in a bad place. And help us through the process of all this, even to win our enemies to you. Because when we win an enemy, we've made him more than a friend. He's become a brother. Oh, Lord, bless us that this will be a real possibility. Because I know there's some folks uh, of this congregation and other places really struggle in some of their relationships. I pray you'll free us up in the spirit of Jesus, to be what we need to be to lead them to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.